the kind of cruelty and policy for me is what, what's the driver and what's the anger. The wealth class of this country get what they want. You go to the Trump years, what'd they get? They got deregulation of, of business and they got massive tax cuts for the wealthy. what the working class get? Well, they got more anger. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. When I talk to people who are evaluating how well the progressive ecosystem is organized to compete with the right, they often say that we are behind in media. My guest today, Rick Smith, is a truck driver who also has a progressive and pro-union radio show, which he labels by working people for working people. Rick's been doing the show on a shoestring for some 17 years on 40 stations now with limited support from his union. Shouldn't we do more to support and promote people like Rick? If you're interested in how we communicate progressive ideas and win what he calls the battlefield of the workplace lunchroom, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Rick Smith of The Rick Smith Show. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Rick, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show. I uh, heard daily uh, across the country from 9 to 11 p.m. You can find that at therigsmithshow.com or 40 stations across the country. I'm a truck driver who is a nationally syndicated radio host as a hobby. This is one of my passions. This is one of the things that I, uh, the way I'm going to help preserve the future for my kids. So that's a little bit about me. I'm a kid who grew up in a housing project on the west side of Cleveland. And I now live in a neighborhood with doctors and lawyers and generals. Because the reality is, is I got a union card in my wallet that's paid me fairly for the, the work that I've done and given me opportunities I could have never imagined as a young child. So there's, there's the 30-second the elevator on me. That's good and very interesting. I have listened to some of the, the Rick Smith show, so I kind of know what it is. But for people who don't know, could you describe it a little more? What would they find if they listened to you? Simply, I'm a working-class guy who does a working-class program. Uh, I try not to get into the right-left as much as the up-down. You know, the reality is it's not about the red hat or the blue hat. It's about the hard hat. And it's about how are we going to rebuild this country and bring us back together. You know, we were talking a little bit before we started. The great battlefield in this country, in my view, has always been the lunchroom. And sadly, Democrats, the left, liberals, progressives, we've lost the lunchroom over the last 40 years because we stopped talking to working people. And in fact... You know, as we did our tour, many working people feel that the left talks down to them and degrades them and finds them, you know, uneducated and stupid. Or and then the reality is, is they're not uneducated and stupid. They're just over misinformed. 
And this is where I think the battlefield is in going back into those lunchrooms and going back into those rural communities and having the hard conversations about, you know, we value work. We want work to be rewarded and fighting those battles that we've kind of seeded over the last 40 years because the reality is we're getting our ass kicked in rural America. And you know that as well as anyone. Well, it's, it is absolutely ironic that the people kicking our ass are the Republican party as if they care about working people, as if their policies were a good fit, as if their elites were somehow less patronizing. I, I don't get it. Well, you see, this is where the difference is. When you start taking the economics out of it, when both parties are the same, they, they both suck on economic issues. Republicans are horrible. I say this all the time. They don't both suck equally. Not Hold at on. All. This, is, this is the view. This is what, in talking with people, this is what the, the sentiment is. I say all the time, working Republicans hate working people. Just look at their policies. But Democrats haven't been their great champion either. I go back through my lifetime. Jimmy Carter promised to undo Taft-Hartley. That didn't happen. Bill Clinton promised to get strike replacement pushed through. That didn't happen. Obama shook my hand twice and promised me the Employee Free Choice Act and something better. We didn't get either. They're tired of the false promises, so they've given up on the economic side of it, and now they're going to something else. It's now the, the cultural stuff. It's now the bathrooms. It's the outrage candy that they're force-fed by the right and have been for 40 years. The transgender issue is one of those interesting things to me. We dealt with this in my workplace 30 years ago. Les went away. When Les came back, Les was Leslie. Do you know who cared? Not too many people. Absolutely no one. Leslie came back to work, did her job, got the same pay, got the same benefits, just went to a different bathroom, had to make a special accommodation that the union and the company worked through, and they figured it out. It wasn't the end of society. We didn't hear about it every moment of every day. We didn't clutch the children. We didn't do all of the things that, well, that we're doing today. We dealt with it. We solved the problem. We figured out a way to, to let people lead their best lives. Today, now we're just fed this outrage to keep us away from the economics, to tear us apart, and to continue to divide that wedge between the working class based on race, on, 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 on gender, on identity, wherever they can figure out a way to slice and dice and pit us against each other, they're going to do. I don't know if Jay Gould actually said it or not, but it's always attributed to him. The quote, I can easily pay half the working class to murder the other half. Oh, God. <laughs> they're not having to pay anymore because they've built the infrastructure to continue to, to outrage us and to keep us pitted against each other and at each other's throat. Why? So they can continue to rob us blind. Every study that's been done in the last 40 years on the economic front shows that the working class is getting screwed at every turn. And working people get it. I talk about this all the time. When I started in the, in the LTL trucking industry, that's less than truckload. I was started off at 15 bucks an hour. This is back how, how old were you? I was 20 years old. Uh, I didn't have enough money to go to college. I, I either had money and no time or time and no money. So that was, that was my, my college problem. But I got a job working for a unionized trucking company, making 15 bucks an hour back in 1990. Was that driving or doing something else? I was throwing boxes on a dock at this point. I, I learned to drive, you know, as, during the lunchtime, an old timer said, hey, I'm going to teach you to drive. This is 19, 1990, 15 bucks an hour. Today, that same exact job starts off at 1690. 
top rate back then was eighteen fifty an hour. Today it's twenty six seventy five. You're talking about a thirty two year span of time. Wages have only gone up eight eight and a half bucks. They probably hour. dropped in real in real terms. In real terms, they've gotten worse. So people like me who are still doing well, lives have gotten worse. That's not all. I get that. I want to ask you a little bit about the the path that you took to become what you are today. So if you indulge me. Absolutely. How long was it that you were working in trucking before kind of starting a show? It was 15 years. Tell me just a little bit about what that life was like for people who don't know it. I got up every day. I worked 10, 12 you know, hours every day, usually six days a week because, look, I was a I was a poor kid. I grew up in a housing project. You wouldn't know it looking at me now, but most months our cupboards were empty at the end of the month. That being poor thing kind of motivated me to make sure that my kids will never, never see that. So I always work six days. My wife will tell you, I've never not worked 70 hours plus a week. So I was a workaholic at that point, but throwing boxes, loading trucks, you learn to drive. So when I went on the road, it was, you know, constantly working. And always politically active. You know, when the union said, hey, we need people to work on campaigns, I was always there. But when I moved from Allentown, Pennsylvania to to Carlisle, it was culture shock here. It was the 2004 election. Kerry had just lost an election that I didn't think he should lose. I moved to an area where my truck driver buddies were completely different than, than the people I had grown up around in Cleveland and even the people I met in Allentown. How were they different? These were folks who were way off to the political right. This was a much more rural area than I've ever been exposed to. I had people at the time telling me that, you know, if we didn't have a union here, we'd be making more money. The union doesn't do anything good for us. And me as a, as a really a true believer, because reality is, you know, my entire life, when someone got a union job, their life got better. And I saw that as, a, as an eight-year-old kid, when the neighbor got a job at Ford, they had food at the end of the month. Kids got a secondhand bike. They bought a secondhand car. They eventually moved out. So even as an eight-year-old, I knew union job, better life. So I've got people who they have the other experience. I wanted to know why. And it comes back to talk radio. So, you know, after 2004, the election, when I moved here and I tried to get involved with the local Democratic Party, not so much going on. I said, you know, what we need to do is we need to start a radio program. We need to talk to people because there's nothing out there. And I I didn't want to be the guy behind the microphone, wanted no part of it. I am not the guy who steps to the front of the room and goes, hey, look at me. It's not me at all. But over the years, we've built this and it's grown. Tell me about like the first time you you actually sat down behind the mic. What was the context of all that and how did it feel? Well, it, it started out as me and, and three other people. We started what was called United for Progress at the time because we had this high-minded idea. We're going to bring the country together with this little one, this little this little two-hour radio program on a Sunday during football season at four o'clock. We didn't even want to get into the Democrat-Republican thing. We wanted to talk about issues. Quickly, those issues turned into, it has to be political. It has to be pick a side. And it was scary as hell, I'll be honest with you, because, you know, it's not me at all. And I was playing second chair. Eventually, everyone else peeled off. And here I am left with what I have built because I was able to raise the funding for my union, my union friends. We negotiated with the station for a little bit of time and, you know, just had this thing. And I have kept it going with duct tape and hustle over these last 17 years. And I've loved every minute of it. Rick, what do you love about it? I love that people 
who hate me the most listen the longest and then challenge my beliefs and challenge what I have to say. And occasionally, and this is the part that I find most fascinating. Someone goes, I hate you. I don't like anything about you. I think you're an idiot, but you said something that made me think. I think about this a little bit different. And I get this, especially on the union front, because the reality is I talk about this all the time because I think it's important because I think the unions are where we can rebuild, re revive, reunite the working class of this country. When we had strong union density, we had broad shared prosperity for a segment. We had problems. Yes, I'd make that caveat, but we can learn from that and expand. There was more democracy, I believe. There was more opportunity to participate. I fear that's that's not as much as it was. And I think this is the place where we can we can do some of that. What have you learned over time? Like when when you were early in it, you know, whenever one starts doing a practice, you over time learn a, a bunch of things on different fronts, like how to speak in a way that people will listen more about the issues, more about how to edit. What's the kind of the trajectory of your growth? Yeah, all of that. I, I'm just a dumb truck driver. I learned how to do all of the editing. I've learned all kinds of software, you know, all the technical stuff that you have to figure out. I like to say at, at the blunt end of a two by four as it's hitting you across the face because things break and you've got to figure this stuff out. Uh, all of that stuff, that's, that's part of it. Uh, the editing software, all that stuff, obviously part of it. But the ability to, to listen better. It's easy to sit and just talk, but I want, to, I want people to, to, to interact. I want to hear what they're saying, and I want to be able to respond in a way that doesn't just say, oh, you're an idiot, because that's been our discourse for so long. And it just happened you know, here this, this past weekend. Someone brought something up and everyone shouted him down as you're just an idiot without trying to educate and, and involve him in a, in a discussion about maybe why he's an idiot <laughs> or where he, he's been misinformed. And, and I think that's part of where, where what I find that I've learned the most about. I've noticed that you've been able to find guests over time, like Senator Sherrod Brown in Ohio or the United States Labor Secretary Walsh. What was kind of the path to more prominence and, and having people be willing to come on your little show, which is now not so little? Early on, we spent a lot of time building a, a name for ourselves. I'm trying to think of the best way to go about this. Because I think about the, the show that I had back during the primary in 2008, where we had Teddy Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, and the governor from Kansas at the time, and I can't remember her name. And we, we had all these, these big name people. And I'm, I'm just sitting there. I'm going, this is a little weekend show. How is it, how is it that we're attracting this? And the, the reality is, is I think you just have to, you have to be more persistent. And I think by being persistent, by building relationships, by building a, a name, We've been around for a long time. A lot of people know who we are. You found us, for instance. Well, one of my other guests recommended you to me. That's how I came across you. And this I, is kind of how this goes. And look, this isn't a very this isn't a very big, you know, a very big market right now. On the right, and this is where I come back to why talk radio is so important. The right has so many voices that they've they've funded and that they've put out there. There's a limbaugh. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of baby limbaugh's in every community across this country. There's a Tom Hartman or a Stephanie Miller, and there are the big, big folks on the left. But there isn't a little one of them in every community. 
adding balance to the airwaves. And that was our main goal at the beginning. We wanted to add some balance and, and give people something to think about. I've talked to Tom about that imbalance. He has his views on it. What's your understanding about why talk radio is so enormously tilted to the right? I come back to the economics. It was glaring for me you know, in 2016 when we went to the conventions, the massive in, imbalance in wealth in the industries on both sides. I went to the Republican convention and there were people who I'd never heard of with, you know, $50,000 worth of gear. You know, they've got six YouTube viewers and they've got all of this, these sponsors and all of this money that's being spent into where people can do this as a career. I say this all the time. This is my hobby. This isn't how I support my family. This is how I put food on the table. I work for a trucking company. That's how I get my family health insurance. There are very few pathways to do this as a career and to expand it, I believe. That's changing, I think, as, as the internet and all that. But look, you know, Limbaugh at his height was on, what, 1,200 stations? Tom Hartman at his height is on, what, 90? Uh, there aren't as many spaces, and it comes back to the economics. How do you get an advertiser? Because people go, Rick, just go out and get advertisers. Okay, let me go to Walmart. I want your workers to be unionized. I want you to pay a higher tax rate like you did back in the Eisenhower years. And, oh, your owners, they should be taxed like the Eisenhower years. Do you think they're going to support that message? Mm, I don't think so. Well, you do have a nice sign behind you and some equipment to your side that has a lot of buttons. It does have a lot of buttons. $1,400 Allen and Heath board. It's great. I love this thing. And that's an upgrade from over the years. It's not the the $20,000 board that that I've seen some people have who are just incredible. So your show has been going for how long now? Uh, we, We kicked off Labor Day of 2005. Okay. And what would you say has changed most about, like you, you have people call in, right? Yep. What has changed most about what you're hearing when people call in or what's the nature of the difference politically? Anger. anger. Just you much know, people, more anger? Because there was anger back then. No, people are much angrier. Oh, and look, the anger is is justified. You know, from As a working class person, the anger is is justified because the working people of this country have been screwed for so long uh, that they they don't know what else to do but express that anger. And then you've got a media culture that feeds that daily outrage, daily anger, daily frustrations of things that we can't control. And of course, the natural reaction is to be angry. Are you angry? I'm angry every day. I'm angry at the opportunities that my kids might not have to do better than I've done. I'm angry about the fact that that kid growing up in that housing project that I grew up in probably isn't going to have the same pathway to opportunity that I have. I think about that kid often or the kids that grew up in that place. When I was a kid, it was a horrible place. I mean, it was violence. I've seen people shot, stabbed, beaten. Our house was robbed 20, 30 times. And not because we had money, but because we may have had food. That when you get down to that bottom level, That's the kind of man's inhumanity to man, if you want. I worry about that kid. I think about policy that can help that kid. And I think about, again, the policies that I watched happen as a kid. I remember in the 70s going to the Peerdis Elementary School in the summertime to have the school lunch program that was there that Reagan then stripped away because evidently ketchup is a vegetable and we need that for tax cuts for millionaires. That was the only hot meal a lot of those kids got all day. The kind of cruelty and policy for me is what, what's the driver and what's the, the anger. The wealth class of this country get what they want. 
You go to the Trump years, what'd they get? They got deregulation of, of business and they got massive tax cuts for the wealthy. What the working class get? Well, they got more anger. Do you think that your anger meets your audience? If they're angry and you're and you're kind of angry on their behalf, does that become a point of connection? I I, I hope so. Because it seems like a different it seems like your anger, if that's what you're calling it, is a different kind of thing than the Rush Limbaugh anger, yes. the Tucker Carlson faux anger. See, my anger is is based on I want to make working people's lives better. My true north is always how do I make working people's lives better? How am I going to make that kid's life that me at ten years old? How am I going to make that kid's life better? And I say this you know, all the time. I've been very fortunate. I've lived a life as a ten year old could have never imagined, and and I'm grateful for all the helping hands I've gotten on, along the way. Could easily be a right wing bloviator. Could easily say I pulled myself up by the bootstraps, could easily say I did all this myself. Not the truth, but could say it. What I do with my anger is I, I, I said, how do we get this anger solved? It isn't anger for anger's sake. How do we move policy that's going to, well, make us better? How do we lead better lives? And I think that's the difference between the left and the right, or at least I hope it is, or it's the reason that I'm to the left. I want policy that's going to make people's lives better. I want us to be able to all live life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, whatever that is. I may not agree with your happiness, but God bless you. Do your thing. As long as it doesn't affect my life, you do your thing. What's your view about the Biden administration, which has snuck a enormous amount of stuff into giant bills and has put uh, a lot of good people in a lot of places that are important and that seem a little unrecognized to me. Joe Biden was not my first choice. He was third, maybe fourth. Bernie was was my first. A little side fact, Bernie Sanders was the first person that I ever interviewed. When I did this show back, first first started back in 05, the first person I interviewed was was a little congressman from, from Vermont. Did he say anything different then than he said no. every time since? No, it's been the same. Oh, the only difference between the Bernie of 05 and the Bernie of today is he combed his hair and someone ironed his suit. That's the only difference. Um, not, but that, not that much combing. <laughs> that's the only difference. Economically and on the message, that's the, that, that's the same guy. Uh-huh. Um, well, how did you how did you connect with him? Like, how did I reach he out was your first get? You, I called and, his office because I think that's Tom Hartman had him a million times on too. I mean, it seems like he must have been very open to progressive radio. At, at that point, I was too stupid to know that this was hard, so I was like a bull in the china shop. As somebody who, if I put my mind to something, I'm gonna do it or die trying. And it was one of those things. I you know I hounded them enough, and you know they they were gracious. And look, he came on probably probably 30 times over the years before he became a senator. As soon as he became Senator Sanders, well, that's a different, that was a little different. And then when he became a presidential candidate, then that was over. But because uh, you, you, you go to a higher level and I understand that. Yeah, if you can go on Meet the Press, it's hard to go on the Rick Smith yeah, yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, of your guests, like who, who were most memorable over time? Who sticks in your mind? I go back to the show, the primary show in... Uh, in 2008 with Hillary and Teddy Kennedy. There was a guy, Cesar Romero was his name. And I remember that because Cesar Romero, not the actor, but he was a sit-down striker at Republic Windows in Chicago. 
when Republic Windows just decided they were going to up and, and shut down. And these workers all sat down in the plant and eventually took over the company and they were able to buy it and they saved those jobs for a while. That guy, the passion of organizing and bringing those co-workers together and the story of those workers, that's one of those things. And that, what, 08's, you know, a whole bunch, 14 years ago, that sticks in my mind. I've had presidential candidates on, I've had senators on, I've had all kinds of people on, but it's generally the stories of, of working people, the stories of people who have struggled and, and have overcome. I mean, on this tour, we've met... We met well, you, you haven't exactly described the tour. I was just going to step back on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, we did a month-long Working Class Heroes tour where we traveled from Pennsylvania all the way to Minneapolis and down to Iowa and back. And, you know, talking to working people in rural and in, in places that you would consider used to be's like Toledo, Ohio, what used to be the glass capital of the world. I had a previous guest describe them as one horse towns where the horse left. Right. That's the same thing. And all that's left now is a drug treatment center and some empty storefronts. And, you know, the, the stories of those people who, who stay and still have a vision of how they're going to rebuild and the passion for their communities, those are important stories to me. I'm not so taken by by big name politicians. They put their pants on like everybody else. It's those people who don't get the spotlight. It's those people who don't make their names in the newspaper or on radio programs. You know, part of why I did this is the stories of working people, the stories like mine, don't get told. And when they do get told, they're mistold. They're told as, you know, hey, you, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. It was all your gumption and hard work. And the reality is it's all part of a community. And I do believe we, we're in a moment where we're pining for community again. We're pining to be a we society. You know, I think back to my grandparents' generation. They were a we society. And Reagan era, maybe a little bit before forward, we've become this hooray for me and the hell with everyone else society. I look at Gen Z and I've got some great hope that they're going to be a we society again, where we start talking about how we feed kids how we end homelessness, how we solve big problems. And you asked about the Biden administration, and I didn't get, I didn't really jump into that. Yeah, he wasn't my first choice, but he is killing it. He may not be able to get out there and talk about it, and I wish somebody would, because we have been, but he is absolutely killing it for the working class. He is absolutely doing the things that we need to do, pushing policy that's going to reshore manufacturing, rebuilding our infrastructure, and strengthening labor unions, what I've been calling the secret sauce of my grandparents' generation, that's how we reunite, revive, and re-engage the working class. Get them the jobs that they need. Get them the opportunities that they demand. And the anger will come down. I think of somebody my age, you know, who was working in a factory, you know, 30 years ago, working a crappy job. Understand, factory work was not fun. Working on a shipping dock at three in the morning in the, in the middle of the winter when it's, it's freezing cold, it's not fun. These are hard work jobs, but these are jobs that had dignity of a decent wage, of good benefits that you know your family is going to be secure with health, and at the end of the road, you're going to have some retirement. These are crappy jobs, but they gave opportunities. When that's taken away, what's left for the identity of a person like me who their pride is in providing for their family? I get their anger. I understand it, and it's justified because we were told, hey, we're going to get rid of all those dirty factory jobs you know, those union jobs. And what did they replace it with? Crappy jobs. Now, understand those union, those factory jobs were not just horrible jobs. 
They were dangerous. They were poverty wage jobs, but they were made good jobs by the unions. And this is where I come back to my passion for labor. Those factory jobs in the steel mills that we pine for again, those manufacturing jobs that we keep hearing about, those were shitty jobs before they were union jobs. They were dangerous. They were dirty. They shortened your lives. They harmed your family. But when they became union jobs, they gave you a chance to support your kids and give them a better life. And that's what people are pining for and demanding. And that's why they're angry, because we replaced them with nothing. And Clinton was the guy who signed NAFTA, like it or not. I know birthed under Reagan, fully negotiated under HW. But this goes back to what I said at the beginning. They view both parties as the same. Clinton signed it and they lost their jobs. They lost their future. They lost their opportunity and they lost their identity. And these communities lost their identities. That's why they're angry. So when Trump came along and said, I'm bringing all that back, they listened. I think of my family, the basket of deplorables. They're all racist. They're all homophobic. They're all misogynistic. They're all of those things. Always have been. The whole community is. But it never motivated them to vote. They never got involved in politics. When Donald Trump said, I'm going to bring Brook Park Avenue back, I'm going to bring back those factory jobs, Ford and Chevy and all the feeder plants, their ears perked up. Hey, I'm going to be able to support my kids again. I'm going to be able to have a future. Those union jobs are coming back. They bought that. And look, we can dissect this a thousand ways, but in the working class, that's what they heard. And this is where I think Joe Biden is doing the right thing. When those construction jobs start humming along and people start getting those union jobs because prevailing wage is in those bills, when the chips bill comes through and you're building manufacturing plants and those union jobs come through, lives are going to get better and you're going to see the anger level come down. At least that's my thought. I mean, we're in a moment here where... Trump is running for president. He's slipping a little uh, in the polls with respect to DeSantis. There's still that anger. There's still that opportunity for a politician on the right to tap into it in the way Trump did last time or in different ways. There's still going to be very likely a incredibly tight battle for the White House next time. Maybe if there's a big recession, it won't even be tight and the Republicans will walk away with it. How do you view the big politics? Because so much is at stake on the union front and on every front, democracy front, going up to the next election. How are you thinking about that at this time? I'm thinking about it in in two ways. One, the policies that Biden has put in place, I think, are going to be very helpful. Once you make people's lives better, it's the Reagan question. Are you better off than you were four years ago? When people start seeing things happening, I think things will calm down. On the democracy front, look, we're two very different parties. We're two different Americas. Uh, the fight is for those independents and those people in the middle. And this election, independence, for the first time in a very long time, in a midterm election where one party controls the White House, went with that party because I think they've seen just how extreme the Republicans have gotten. It's only going to get worse. Will they learn the lessons of Pennsylvania? I don't know if the Republicans are going to learn not to put up someone as bad as Doug Mastriano. This is where the the entertainment's value of sitting in this seat is going to to play in. How extreme do do the Republicans get? How I want Trump to be part of this because I think he drives them to that extreme. He allows them to be who they want to be, and we get to see who they are. And the hope, and this is where we're, we're doing what I do, is important. We have to point that out, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Or that was just a, a giant word salad. <laughs> I think we play a little bit with fire when we, sometimes we were helping them nominate the extreme candidates and r- rooting for them. And that panned out. It, it actually worked almost in every case. But it's nerve wracking because, like you said, a guy like Mastriano in charge of a state could be the difference in the trajectory of the country in an enormous way. So the question then comes back to, do you want to get shot in the head or do you want to die of, of razor blade cuts to the arm? I don't want either, to be honest. No, but you know, it, that's, that's, that's the thing. You, you're heading down a path. You just rip the Band-Aid off or do you slowly take it off? Look, if this is the path we're going, then we've got to fight the fight that's coming. Let it be in my generation. Let it be me now, now who has to fight this. What stops your radio show from being 10 times as big or 100 times as big? What's in the way of its being more adopted around the country? Platforms. There are places to go. I mean, the reality is we're on 40 stations. If you take the Pacifica network out, which sadly is kind of dysfunctional, there's probably maybe 90 stations that that liberal programming would work on. Why can't a big radio station that has conservative programming also have some, have you? I tried this years ago. If you remember when Michael Savage, whatever happened with his contract, they pulled him off the air. I was doing nine to midnight locally and the big station here had nothing. So I went to them and I said, you know, how much do you want? I will pay you whatever you want. What do you want? Give us that slot. And the guy told me flat out, there's, there's not enough money. We're formatted. And I'm going, I bring a half a million dollars. You're telling me that's not enough money. He goes, well, you can't do that. I go, but that's not the question. Would you take it? He said, no. I mean, wouldn't they normally pay a host rather than being paid by a host? Well, see, that's the other part of this industry as well. I mean, on the bigger scale, they have a couple, but for the most part, your nationally syndicated programs are either barters or somebody's paying a little bit to, to bring the advertising in. What the left doesn't understand is radio is a business. You bring enough money in, in most places, they're going to put you on unless unless it's you know WHP here in Harrisburg. But you can buy onto stations and build your programming from there as, with advertisers. And that's what the right did. Look, I'm not saying radio is inherently right or left. It's a business. It's where the money is. So in, in the 80s, when Rush Limbaugh was buying time on every station that would take him across the country for 100 bucks an hour back then, He's credited for saving AM radio. They went out, they got advertisers, and advertisers funded that. Can we do that model on the left? I talk all the time to donor advisors that are working for the progressive wealthy, even the billionaires, and they are looking for efficacious ways to move the country in the right direction, this subset of wealthy people. Yep. What, what, no, you could absolutely. Like if, if you if, had, look, what, what, what should they be doing? We're on 13 stations in Wisconsin. There's there's a guy there, and I'm I'm not going to throw out his name, but there's a guy there who's funding the purchasing of station. They bought 13 signals. They cover the entire state now. They're going to go to another state. You got to buy infrastructure. You got to build infrastructure. It's that simple. They're doing that. What's that saying? The other money doesn't make you happy, but it, it gives you opportunities. An inflection of of Funding would give us the opportunity to grow on the terrestrial front, because I still believe terrestrial radio is is something that's important. And I, I go back to our, our working class heroes radio tour. We were in Sioux City 
I don't know if you know who J.D. Scholten was, but we were interviewing I J. had J. him on my show, actually. J.D.'s yes. a great guy. Yeah. And he said, you know, when he was, you know, crisscrossing the state, he goes, you have no idea what talk radio has done to this state. It has taken, you know, farmers who, you know, who believe in, you know, co-ops and, and all of the, you know, the farmers union and all the things that it has radicalized them to be rabid right wing theocrats, if you will. And it's because of this medium. And we just didn't invest in it. So the simple answer, it's money. It's always that. It's investing in, in building something. And it's not for a profit. We could probably get into the whole conversation about the Powell memo and the investments made in the Heritage Foundation and, and ALEC and the Federalist Society and all that. But this is part of that. They built a massive megaphone, invested in it. They built it and people came. And you have to, you have to. I mean, there, there were all those roll-ups of radio stations, of media companies, and turns out by conservatives, conservative owners, and then they slant it, right? Yeah. Well, yep. that's, that's a big part of it. Because also it's, they understand that the money, when you're pushing the, the ideology of low taxes, of deregulation, of breaking unions, yeah, you're going to get a lot of corporate advertising. You're going to get a lot of corporations who go, yeah, the pendulum swing all the way to my side. I'll invest in that. And they've built that model. Pretty simple. I mean, it, it really was brilliant when you look back at it and what they did. They executed their playbook. And we didn't. We spent all of our money on candidates. I like Jamie Harrison, but was he ever going to beat Lindsey Graham? No. I liked Amy McGrath. Was she ever going to beat Mitch McConnell? No. We can go through all of these people we fell in love with and spent hundreds of millions of dollars on. And what did we get? We got a wealthier Comcast. We got a wealthier media structure because you know what we have to do? And this is the important part of all this for, for my candidate friends, because this is the other thing that I've been screaming about for 18 years. As someone who's advised candidates and uh, helped people run for office, when Republicans want airtime, there's a network of radio programs out there that just pick up the phone and they get free airtime. When Democrats need to get on the air and talk about things, they got to pay for it because there isn't the infrastructure for them 24-7, 365 to get out their message. And you wonder why the country has moved in the direction they've gone because it's all they've heard. And I go back to the great battlefield, the lunchroom. I remember the guy who brought Rush Limbaugh into our lunchroom. Steve was his name. I remember it like it was yesterday. He was the guy who started spewing nonsense and everyone attacked him. Oh, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. But within three years, that lunchroom was divided in half because that guy every day came in because he knew something. He wanted to stand up and say, I know something. And we didn't talk to him. Do you think that your show provides something for the guy or gal in the lunchroom? to that's, that's com combat that what have you found to be most successful or or have been like what do people say about things that you say or your guests say that seems to be a successful message out there most of the people that, that reach back to me say it's because i take nothing in this so don't so don't take this the wrong way but i've heard often that uh they view me as ed schultz but only real that you know, I'm truly a working class person, so they identify with with who I am, and they know that I'm authentic. I'm not bullshitting them. That when I say something, I mean it, and when I ask someone a question, it's because either I don't know, or I want to know, or or it's a point I want made. 
and that it's purely from a working class point of view. There is bias, and I fully admit my bias. My bias is how do I make the guy working next to me at at the, the trucking company or on the factory line, how do I make that person's life better? How do we make their kids have a better opportunity, get better education? How do we break down the barriers that I I had to go through to, to lead a better life? How do we get to that place where we're all doing better? And for me, that's the part. Do you think that we should be electing more people with that viewpoint and, and roots like that? Absolutely. But it comes down to, again, I go back and I hate the fact that it's about money. And I say this all the time. My grandfather always had a saying. He said, if a rich guy is going to take a, a bucket out of his pocket to tell you you don't need something, you better spend two to get it because they understand return on investment. Somehow my generation and other generations didn't have that, that bit of one-line wisdom of the greatest generation. This idea that if, if I'm being constantly reinforced with this idea that unions are bad and tax cuts for corporations are good, maybe there's something that's not in my interest. And we can argue that tax cuts have some positive effect for business, but they still continue to make massive profits. In fact, right now, one of my biggest pet peeves are all these stock buybacks. This is basically a company telling me, yes, you've given us all this money. We have nothing else to do with it, but make ourselves richer. Uh, I thought the tax cuts were for you to reinvest in infrastructure, buy new equipment, hire workers. I thought it was supposed to trickle down. I'm not seeing the trickle. I mean, the trickle's coming. It's yellow, but it ain't honey. Do you ever look at the example of Mike Pence, who had a a show before he ran for political office and think, well, I have the right set of characteristics and views and experience speaking that I should run myself? Someday. Someday I may. At this point, I think I'm doing the right work here. If I ran for something, I'd have to give all this up. And and I I want to see where this goes because I believe I believe in talking to people and I believe in in sharing stories. And and I want to change hearts and minds. I want that guy who hates me. I want his 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 disdain, but I want him thinking. I want him going, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Maybe I'm gonna put this into my thought process. I want that union guy going. Yeah, I'm going to pull the lever for Republicans. But wait a second. I heard Rick talk about, you know, Mastriano said he's going to pass right to work on day one. Yeah, I don't want Pennsylvania to be a right to work state because I know in listening to Rick's show that right to work states have lower wages, less health care, less retirement security and are much more dangerous. I don't think I want that for myself and my kids. I want that to happen. I want people to think about different policies. I want people to think about what kind of a country do we want. So I think where I'm at, Right now, this is this is where I need to be. Do you listen to other progressive hosts? And if so, who? I sadly don't listen to any other progressive hosts. And there's a reason. I want what I think and what I say to be organic and want it to be mine. I have a friend who says, no, no, you good writers write, great writers steal. I think that's how it goes. I, I, I'm not in that world. I want I want my thoughts to be my own. I don't want to regurgitate with someone else. Early on, I had someone who I brought in to kind of co-host, and I found out later all he was doing was regurgitating Tom Hartman. And and I and I had a listener call me out on that. Say, oh, you know, I just heard that that same, and that was the end of that. No more. So no, I don't listen to to other programs. I listen to the right wing shows a lot because I want to know what the other side is saying. I watch Fox News a lot. I read 
the Heritage Foundation's emails every day and all the right-wing stuff that comes out because I want to know what they're saying. And then I want to formulate my own opinions. When you listen to the right-wing stuff, I mean, I, I, I also do that some. I certainly dip into the Fox News and read some of the stuff online and just to acquaint myself. And what is it that you hear there that is persuasive, if anything? There's always a kernel of truth. There's always something in there that you go, oh, that's common sense. And then they, they take it that next step further to the outrage. And I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. <laughs> you think about the transgender issue, and this is a big one in our lunchroom. It's the, one of the things that divides people the most. As someone who was an athlete, you know, I was, I was okay as an athlete. Now, sports are kind of one of those areas. And the transgender issue is one of those things that we as a society haven't argued out. It's a little tricky when there's a very good athlete who is competing with women who wasn't in that and, category and look, or always. Yeah. Not jumping in the middle of all this. Uh, all I'm saying is, is, as a society, we haven't had that. We haven't vetted that conversation. So what they do is they take that, that belief that, you know, I don't know. And then they turn it to the most extreme. And they take those most extremes and they hammer on them. They start inventing kids identifying as cats yeah and and look are there people out there who do weird things yes there are people who do weird things and you know what god bless them let them do all the weird things they want to do in the confines of their four walls i have no problem with that you know it goes back to you know justice black's comment you can flail your fists around until it touches the tip of my nose as long as it doesn't touch the tip of my nose we're good life liberty pursuit of happiness and look conservatives used to believe this I go back to my first experience with the transgender issue was 30 years ago in the workplace. Nobody cared. It was something to be figured out. We figured it out. We can figure this out. The problem is, is we have an entire media culture that doesn't want us to solve problems, doesn't want us to get to solutions. They just want us angry. They want us consuming. They want us coming back for more outrage. They want us addicted to it because we are. We're addicted to the anger because we don't want to look at how bad our lives have gotten and the promise that we were told that if we work hard, play by the rules that would actually get ahead, we're distracted by the anger. Does it tempt you to play that outrage card harder yourself to grow the audience? No, that's that's not why I'm in this. You know, this this isn't my that isn't my my calling, my passion. I, I find it dishonest. For me, it comes back to that that true north. How do I make you know people's lives better? How do I make that that ten year old me have the opportunities that I've had? Look, uh, when I was a kid, you know, we were we were on the verge of homeless numerous times. Our cupboards were empty a lot of the times. We didn't have cars. We didn't have any of that stuff. I now, I now not only own my own home, I have two that we bought one for my daughter. Our cupboards are never empty. Our kids have never seen despair. They've never seen any of the things. And I have been so blessed and grateful. I want that for everybody. You know, I don't want to kick the ladder down behind me. And look, I'm not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But begin from where I started, I am grateful, eternally grateful for every opportunity I've had. Would you like to make the radio the full-time source of your income? Well, yeah, I would like that to be my first, my how I support my family. It's already what I wake up in the morning to do, so, or actually in the afternoon, because I work nights. But it's what I wake up to do. It's what I'm thinking about constantly. It is my passion. This is what I want to do, because I do believe this is the battlefront. This is where we, we fight for hearts and minds, and we do it in a way that we make lives better. I mean, for me, it's that simple. 
sometimes when I'm interviewing somebody who has a amazing story, I can feel kind of palpably transformed in the moment by that conversation. What kind of conversations that you've had have that effect on you? It was an immigrant, actually. I don't remember his name. I think he came from South Sudan. And he let the goats out. And as punishment for letting the goats out, the master took this, this kid, hung him upside down over a fire and rubbed chilies in his eyes. In Sudan, are you saying? In Sudan. Yeah. And he was blind. He was blinded by that. Now, he came here. Um, he was able to get surgery that he can, he can see shapes. Can't see like anyone else, but he can see shapes and has forged a life and is, is happy. And you go, that's what this country is about. That's the American dream that you can make lives better, that people can have opportunities. If you're willing to work hard, play by the rules, you should get ahead. And those stories that I've heard, because I share mine often, and some people, oh, you, you play that card too much. And I, no, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've, I've been able to, to overcome some things and I've done fairly well. And other people hear that story and they want to share theirs. And I think if we did more of that, we shared commonly on how we make lives better, that we would be a much more generous society, that we would be a much more willing to reach out a hand as opposed to slap it away and yell at somebody. I know coming out of this pandemic, we've been trained to be angrier. I get that. But I still believe, you know, all the rhetoric, you know, we were workers are essential. They are heroes. They are people who need to be treated with dignity and respect. And how we have to do that in some places is people have to organize and demand it. If it's not given, you got to take it. In our country's history, the labor movement and working people have not always been welcoming to immigrants, new immigrants, whatever the current group that's... It's workplace democracy. I mean, you're talking about the makeup of the membership. And yeah, we can go back to the 50s and say, look, you know, yeah, those white construction workers, they didn't like the black workers. When I was in Cleveland, Cleveland was at the point when I grew up was a very segregated city. If you were a black guy in Little Italy at night, you better be pushing an old lady in a wheelchair. If you were a white guy on the Lower East Side, uh, you better get out. Uh, there were very clear dividing lines and people stayed to their areas. We were tribal and the unions were no different. I think now we're much more inclusive. I think there's much more awareness of the history. And I talk to labor leaders all the time who are cognizant of what the past was and committed to not making those, those mistakes in the future. Understanding, and anybody who studies labor history, as I do, understands that those divides at our detriment. You go back to Tennessee, you know, after the Civil War, you know, they were locking black people up simply so that they could lease them out to break strikes. The lease convict program was something Tennessee made money off of. Oh, you're standing on the street corner, vagrancy, we're going to throw you in jail, and then we'll lease you out to the coal barons because those white coal miners are on strike demanding another nickel a week in wages. So we're going to send the black prisoners in to do your job, and we're going to create that dynamic so that you're going to hate each other. Because, of course, the miners are going to call them scabs. And, of course, the black guys are going to go, I don't have a choice. I'm being forced in here. So this was constructed. We have to tear this down. And I think where we do this 
is we do it in the labor movement. I think they have done incredible work over the last 30 years of tearing down some of those barriers. Is there more that needs to be done? Absolutely, there always is. But I think this is the direction. Workplace democracy is the call of the day. Rick, what is making you most hopeful and what is making you most fearful about the future of this country? I look at my kids' generation. I see them as much more politically active than my generation was. I was politically active as a, as a young kid because you know my first job was a paper boy at eight years old. I delivered the Cleveland Press at eight and the, the Press and the Plain Dealer at nine. So every day I was reading the newspaper. Um, so I was I was kind of in it a little bit. And there was a guy in our neighborhood who, who got me involved in handing out leaflets for Dennis Kucinich back in the, in the 70s when he ran for mayor. But my generation really wasn't that politically active. My kids are hyper tuned in. And I think a lot of it has to do with Roe. I think a lot of it has to do with the climate. I think a lot of it has to do with a media culture that's saying, you know, our democracy's on fire. I think part of it is, and I've been saying they're probably going to be the greatest generation again, if you buy the fourth turning argument, because they don't have a choice. They're being saddled with all the problems that we couldn't, wouldn't, and didn't solve and actually made worse. They're much more militant, I believe. So that gives me hope that they're not going to take BS for very long. My great fear is my generation is so stubborn and locked in and and lost, almost irredeemable, I fear. But I'm hopeful. Look, this is the reason I do what I do. I talk to people who are you know, my contemporaries. We hash out these arguments. We have these discussions because the hope is, is that we do find some, some sanity. What should I have asked you that I haven't? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, who's my favorite football team? <laughs> no, you've, you've, you've done great. You've hit everything. I mean, am I hopeful for the future? Yeah, I am hopeful for the future. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be grabbing as much for myself as I could. But I am hopeful. And understand, I am not. <laughs> my wife will be the first to tell you, I am not optimistic as part of my nature. I am naturally the pessimist. I naturally see the worst in people. People who know my wife and I know that she's the eternal optimist. She only sees good in people. She's that kind of naive, as where I'm the complete opposite, having grown up where I did. She grew up on a farm on an avocado ranch in Southern California. I grew up in a housing project in Cleveland. We're very different. But together, we kind of find a middle ground where she tempers my, my pessimism. But I am optimistic in this moment because I look at what happened in Michigan, that if you have a fair fight, that democracy can win, that, that working class issues can win. I look at here in Pennsylvania where a Nazi was soundly defeated and Democrats were able to take back the House with, with sane maps. I have hope because I believe in us. I believe in we the people. I believe to our core that we do believe we're equal that all men are created equal, that we, we do want life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that we do believe in those flowery words. Or I couldn't do this. Well, it's an honor to talk to you today. I really appreciate your time. Anything else you want to say? I uh, Just tune in weeknights, 9 to 11 uh, Eastern time. You can do that at the ricksmithshow.com or check our local listings on, on our website. Follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. If you got questions, comments, email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Awesome. Thanks much. That was Rick Smith. He's at thericksmithshow.com. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.